Welcome to Well Tempered, a podcast about the smart, creative, and crafty women in the chocolate industry. I'm Lauren Heinick, founder of Weekend Chocolate, community builder, host of this show, and now found making micro batches until my dreams of owning a shop come true in Barcelona. I'm so excited to be launching this episode with the commencement of the Salon du Chocolat in Paris, where today's show guest changed the course of her life a decade ago. I'll be there this year too, experiencing it for the first time, and can't wait to be submerged in chocolate, bringing back more knowledge and desire to push forward in this world. Of course, if you see either one of us in the audience, say bonjour. Before we start the show recording, a little more about today's feature. Sophie Jewett is founder of York Cocoa House and York Cocoa Works in York, England. Both namesake chocolate shops, cafes, and the latter a seven-month-old bean-to-bar chocolate factory. Both pay homage to York's storied mercantile past and cocoa history. On this episode, she walks us through the launch of her business, the years leading up to the construction of the factory, including gathering 500 investors for more than 400,000 pounds in investment money. Hear her enchanting tales of local food history, economics, and sociology, all molding her view on what the future of chocolate and York will look like and how she and her team are actively setting the tone. Thanks for tuning in. And I think like because we work in the sector where we do a lot with big industry as well, it's kind of we've learned so much from big industry and we learn so much from farmers and craft producers. And it's really kind of just about breaking down some of the barriers to learning and understanding more from each other. So my little shtick lately has been starting with something a little fun, uh, an icebreaker of sorts. And I was thinking... Maybe this won't be pertinent to you because you've always been such an entrepreneur, but is there anything that you've done that's really off the wall to get a job interview or to make sure that you were the first choice as a candidate? Wow. Okay. Um, I have quite an obsessive personality, so I will really focus and throw everything at something when I really want it. I had been working with this fundraising group that were promoting activities for students and community development. And it was a really fantastic role that meant that I would need to take a year off my studies to be able to do it and then go back to university afterwards. So it meant I had to go on this big political campaign in order to get people to vote for me. And it also required me to do like the dance moves to steps, which was just like a very surreal moment. It was one of those experiences where I had a lot of people sort of saying, you're too young to do that. You can't do that. You've not even finished your degree or you've not been here long enough. So there was a lot of points I had to prove, really, to be able to earn kind of the respect for the role and be able to earn the right to do the role. And has that felt like a theme that's carried over that, you know, you're still so young and you're still 
an entrepreneur and you're still encountering these projects that are quite large in capacity, do you feel like there's still those naysayers and still those people that are like, you're too young, you don't know enough? Yeah, so I guess there's been a lot of instances and experiences where from my own determination or kind of pigheadedness sometimes, I think that I've kind of evaluated where I am in the world and sort of said, okay, but if that's what I want to do, what are the biggest barriers to stopping me doing that? Age doesn't really need to be a factor. I've always looked for opportunities to kind of either prove myself or take on responsibility from quite a young age. So um, at 18, I was training to be a manager for Marks and Spencer's. Then I went to university and I had these experiences, but not quite as young, I don't think, as uh, people might think I am. I'm sure the chocolate keeps me looking youthful. So the real fountain of youth is chocolate? Absolutely. It's the answer to everything. All right. Let's stay on that path because you just started to give a little intro into where you came from and some of your earliest positions and careers. What has the last, I don't know, decade or so looked like? How have you entered the chocolate space? Everything, I guess, has happened over the last decade. And I know that very, very precisely because it's it's my birthday in a couple of weeks' time. And I'm going to be entering into the viewpoint to the next decade ahead. So 10 years ago, it was my 29th birthday. And I was very much looking at where my life was. And it wasn't where I wanted to be by the time I was 30. So I thought, wow, I've got one year left to kind of hit the milestones that I want to hit and be where I want to be. And um, I don't know what to do to get there. So I looked at what was happening at my around about my 30th birthday. Where did I want to celebrate my 30th birthday? And there was a chocolate show in Paris. And I thought, wow. Do you know what? I absolutely love chocolate and there's nowhere else on earth I can imagine wanting to be except for celebrating my 30th birthday at a chocolate show in Paris. My partner at the time, he sort of said, looked at it and he said, but you've got to be a professional to be at this show. And I think he thought it meant that I couldn't go because I wasn't a professional. And I took that to mean, wow, I've got one year to become a professional. That kind of is where things started, kind of started formulating and crystallizing into kind of the business and vision that we start delivering now. Um, But I guess there was a bigger backdrop to it. I was working in community development and strategic stakeholder development for a university. I'd been manager for an outside catering company. I'd worked extensively in food and drink. I'd been managing projects and events and strategy and delivery of quite big budget activities and programs. And so I kind of felt actually maybe I've got something I can draw on with these skills and these strengths. And to top it all off, I really, really loved chocolate. And I was sitting here in a city like York and kept asking people, why don't we do anything with the chocolate industry in the city? Why don't we promote it? Why don't we celebrate it? Why are we just letting these factories close around us? Um, And at that point, Terry's had just closed, crafted, bought the factory, bought the company and the brand and had moved production to Poland. And I kept meeting people and they used to work in the industry. They had these amazing stories, but that was all gone. And every time I asked these questions, everyone kept saying, that's someone else's job. Someone else should do that. And I kept kind of thinking, well, what if no? What if we did it? And then people laughed at me and they said, well, let's do it. 
and then some people believed it and some people helped me make it happen and here we are and that thing that you did ultimately is your coco works it's much larger than that it's much grander than that so if you could walk us through the dimensions of the brand factory cafe etc etc we can get to know a little bit about this I looked to see where I could learn to celebrate this thing of chocolate. And like many people, there were two very seminal books for me. One was Chocolat by Joanne Harris, who talks about the most beautiful chocolate shop in, in France, where you can just kind of imagine walking into and being completely enveloped in this whole chocolate experience. And the other one was by Chloe Dutra-Russell and The Connoisseur's Guide to Chocolate. I read both of those books were just kind of, they really spoke to me in ways that kind of I could relate to and I could see myself in those the narrative and the stories that they were illustrating and the experiences that they were conveying and really felt that there was something we could build on from that. My studies at the time were working on what we call experiential marketing. So brand marketing, but talking about how people were investing in experiences. And I was looking at the world that kind of looks at digital marketing and all the other kind of really fast-paced fintech, like investable ideas. But it all boils down to what we experience and how we have relationships with things, with places, with people. And for me, coming from a very large family, there's no substituting those sorts of those family occasions and experiences and kind of the community at the heart of it. And being in a city like York that had this amazing industry, it was like it was about the people. A lot of what I've been studying was looking at places and how we connected with them authentically through the food that we consume and experience. And looking at the economic of our environment, looking at how we engage with that environment through consumption, through eating things, through meeting people and learning where that food comes from. And we're here in the middle of York at the moment. We've got our big food festival, which is something I've been very proud to be involved with for the last 14 years here in the city. And when people connect with their food, when people connect with how it's made, where it comes from, who grows it and how it's crafted, we create these very open, honest, very genuine bonds between people between people that have never known each other before and that was something that I've been very privileged to see throughout my career working in hospitality working in food and drink and working in family celebrations organizing weddings and events people kind of when it comes down to eating together there becomes a point where our differences are something that's outside of that real experience that we have and that's really what is at the heart of what we do and I kept asking these questions of people and I would get several responses and I can normally categorize them into different responses. One, people would have an amazing experience of their own that they would be bowled over to share. Another reflection I would have would be people that just didn't want to tell you anything. And another kind of response would be, well, why would you ever want to do that? And they were completely incredulous of why on earth I would be interested in making chocolate or wanting to do it when like the big companies did it so well. And I'm like, but I want to know. I want to know. And I guess that's really what the Cocoa Works is. It's about understanding 
cocoa, understanding chocolate, understanding how uh, this story got all of us to where we've got to, whether it's across civilizations or communities or cultures or through the city and being able to retell this story of the city. So we have the cocoa house and the cocoa house kind of harks back to that story from Chocolat where you kind of, you can imagine walking into the most perfect chocolate shop and being enveloped with smells and uh, inviting chocolate treats and just busyness going on and being able to just sit there and be part of it. That's why it's called the Cocoa House. It's about it's being homely. It's about it being non-pretentious. It's just there for you to kind of be be welcome and find your own space and your own product, your own cake. I, we have some customers that have their own seat. And if they can't get their own seat, they'll go away and come back later. And if we don't have the cake, then they'll sit there until the cake comes out of the oven. It's great to f- give people the opportunity to just feel comfortable and feel at home um, in the way that kind of I guess a lot of us had relationships or see people have relationships with their local pub I used to work in a pub where everybody had their own chair everyone had their own tankard and if their pint wasn't on the bar by the time they got to the the bar counter you'd be in trouble it just kind of created such a really lovely warm environment and that's what we aspired to do but it was something that could be more engaging with with families and with children and just hope that they can see where our products come from and then as consumers in the future we start kind of appreciating more when people put good stuff into the food that we enjoy absolutely yes so many smiles that i've had in the last few moments listening to you describe what drives you in this passion project that is now a reality for your community. And I so hear that human element and how important that is to you. And there's another piece of it that within the financial meltdown of 2008, which I find so fascinating and that it really was a global impact and how it, for better or for worse, and I think it's so many for us, the better made us have the opportunity to rethink what life would be like. I love that you were able to turn that around into a positive for you and your city and community. We cannot help but know within your story, there is this historical value of Chocolate City and York being such a pivotal piece of the history of chocolate in Europe. And I would love to hear a little bit more about how that came to be such a paramount place within England and afar and how that has continued to be important or of importance to people living in the city today. The role that I had kind of, it was a a really magnificent fine dining company um, that had been created by this woman who had had a business for like 25, 30 years, a very, very formidable character who's uh, been an amazing role model to me. And through those experiences, we would host things like Viking banquets and medieval banquets. And we did this one beautiful, beautiful Georgian banquet. And I'd listen to historians talking about the history of the city and bringing these stories to life. And York is, some people call it a living museum. We're surrounded by so many amazing old buildings that we kind of become a bit immune to it at sometimes. It kind of, for me, started crystallising. I've been working in all these old buildings. I kind of would turn the minster into a dining room and um, do lots of occasions and celebrations for the Lord Mayor. So I would spend most of my time in the kitchen downstairs, a living, breathing Downton Abbey sometimes, it was a really privileged place to be sort of when you you see kind of the housekeepers and the drivers and just the things that really make the building tick. And it kind of takes you back into this sort of timeless experience. 
And through that, I had the opportunity of kind of delving beyond the surface of these things that I would see and experience in these different museums and collections. It was a story that hadn't really been written because it was such a, a living part of the city's history. When we kind of I started looking into it 10 years ago, it was like it was there, but it was had never been collated or drawn together. What I can share with you now is what I've uncovered so far, but it's something that I keep encountering the most inspiring narratives around, and there's so much more I want to delve into. But York was always this confectionery city. It was a, a city of the capital of the north, and it was the, the place where government once ruled the country from, and we think of Richard III, the House of York. It was very much a very, very powerful city in the whole of the country, hence why we have one of the most beautiful and largest Roman Gothic cathedrals in Northern Europe, at York Minster, here in the city. So York was always a city for pilgrimages, it was a city for trading. It was a city for politics. It was a city for partying and socialising. It kind of had all these really quite amazingly cosmopolitan ingredients for, in the city. And a city built on two rivers, it meant that things could come down from the moors and the dales to the city quite easily. So people bring their crops and goods to sell. But also, equally, those crops and traded products could come into the city. So our proximity with Amsterdam and Holland and coming up the River Ouse from Hull allowed things to come into the city so readily. And so we created our own kind of very cosmopolitan market in York. And that brought spices and herbs and furs and lots of amazing fruits from hundreds, thousands of years ago. And so the more I would engage with kind of food history here in the city, the more we kind of connected with the fact that actually we had a really quite developed palate. The recipes I was making, the, we were serving kind of with Viking banquets, these orange flummery, which is such a beautiful, beautiful dish. Dishes with very kind of citrusy tropical fruits back in the sort of 1400s. Uh, that were being served here in the city. So York had this amazing narrative of, of all of these things that have been going on. So in the Minster, we still have today one of the earliest ever known confectionery recipes. It was written in the 1200s, and it's there in the Minster archive. So people kept abundance of records here in York. Each time I keep going down this rabbit warren of kind of figuring out and learning all these different bits, I came across one very little known fact that the first confectionery recipe book outside of London was published here in the city in 1737. And it includes recipes, including chocolate, chocolate creams in the recipe book. But it talks about sugar and sugar being this product that was being used to preserve things, to make things taste sweeter, make medicines taste sweeter. And that's where our apothecaries come from. And Joseph Terry himself was an apothecary who they practiced sugaring the pill, making it taste sweeter. And that's kind of where a lot of our modern medicines come from. We have all these kind of rich cultural melting pots. So um, I've been teaching with the University of York the last few years, looking at exploring kind of why York became this hub of confectionery and chocolate. And it really was the confectioners that became like this big brethren entrepreneurs around the city. So back in the 1790s, there were like seven confectioners that had their shops all across the city and they were making the most wonderful delicacies. 
Joseph Bell was training with one of those confectioners here in York, and he got to the point where he had done his apprenticeship. And in York, in the the traditions that this, how the city was run, it was what's called a mercantile city. So the city was run by merchants, and those merchants would operate through the guilds or the mysteries, and the guilds would manage the city and they would manage their trade. So if you wanted to trade in York, you had to learn your trade through a merchant who was working or a craftsman that was working in the city who was already a member of their guild. So you had to train with an experienced professional. You had to train for at least seven years. There were some shortcuts to that if you paid your way through. Also, though, if you did anything that was prohibited, you could get your internship kind of extended and you had to kind of work extra long. So once they had completed their apprenticeship, they could become a freeman of the city. And once they become a freeman of the city, they could then join the guild. And then, and only then, were they allowed to trade in the city. And that way of running the city kind of extended and continued up until the early 1800s. About 1835, there was a a Corporation Act that meant that everything became more centralised in government. So it meant that the system of the guilds and the strength of the guilds kind of really started to lose their way. But the guilds had this really kind of powerful role in the city in all areas, except for the area around the Minster which was called the Liberty of St. Peter. And there's this big walled area where kind of confectioners would come and trade from Italy. So they were clearly coming because there was a a demand for it in the city. And so when Joseph Bell completed his apprenticeship, he became a freeman of the city. But he didn't stay here very long because there was clearly an abundance of confectioners here in York. But he went and opened up a shop in Leeds. I'm not sure how well it did, but a few years later, he became confectioner to the Duke of York and the Prince of Wales. And the Duke of York's dessert table, which is very much something that was captured in Joseph Bell's book he went on to publish. And in the book, he talks about the concept of the dessert table, the dessert table, which is laden with jellies and creams and biscuits and wafers and sugar coated confections, um, wonderful decorative baskets, all crafted out of sugar. It's just this really kind of magical fairy tale like a dessert table, a dessert banquet that was had once the rest of the table was deserted. So this celebration of sugar, this celebration of opulence was really quite this magical combination of things. And it's from there that the confectioners of York started to really bandy together, started to create this club, started to kind of lobby government right in the publications. So they would write letters to the Manchester News and say, we really think that you should do something about all of these other confectioners that are using plaster of Paris in their goods because we don't think it's very good that people consume products with plaster of Paris in. So they kind of really took this very leadership role and at the top of that became then eventually Joseph Terry. And Joseph Terry and another confectioner of the city went on to create in 1836 the first guild of confectioners. So the first national guild of confectioners that started then to lead the way about standards, making sure that confectionery was done properly, making sure that as food industrialised, that it did so with good commitments to each other. And it's from there that we end up seeing a lot of the institutions that we now connect with on a global basis. They have their roots back to that that very first kind of brotherhood of confectioners. And they were all kind of married into each other. So they created this massive empire. 
So it's got all of these wonderful, wonderful narratives. So for me, the real magic is in that history of confectionery. And on the other side, we have uh, the Tuke company who started bringing cocoa into the city as grocers and making that cocoa into chocolate to drink. And then it was that company that Henry Isaac Roundtree did his apprenticeship with. And um, we're very, very privileged to actually have found a premises for the Cocoa Works, which is opposite that very first chocolate manufactory when they started in 1785 here on Castlegate. So that history is kind of very much embedded in the Roundtree narrative, um, a company that very, whether rightly or wrongly, it left a very bitter tone here in the city when it got bought out by Nestle in the 1980s. My goodness. Sophie, I just have to commend you and thank you for taking us on that incredible adventure and tale of of the history of the city. Other than an entrepreneur, I can tell that you're a historian, absolutely, and I adore what you've just been able to comment to us about. Do you feel that through your work, you're also creating a sort of guild or an opportunity for others to engage as apprentices? Or how has that motivated you into the structure and company that you've built? The founding narrative for us was me looking at where I wanted to learn these crafts and who I could ask to share these crafts and their craftsmanship and couldn't find anywhere, couldn't find anywhere in the UK, couldn't find anywhere in Europe and certainly couldn't find a great deal of it in York. Everything was very much to big industry scale and nothing kind of how do you, how do you boil this down to something that was originally conceived in someone's home or in a, a domestic kitchen of some sort. So teaching and training and education is very much paramount and central to what we do. But it was in meeting and listening to so many people that have been involved in the industry. There are so many amazing stories uh, of things they got up to in the factories. So in that context, we wanted to make sure that those skills weren't lost from the city. And it's not just really from the city, it's really from the craftsmanship in chocolate full stop. And that's really what's become very, very clear. I'm not entirely certain if a guild is the right thing. Um, and this is something we've undenied about. We've gone backwards and forwards in structuring. But a guild relies on professionals. And I don't mean that in terms of like we're not professionals, but I'm not a professional chocolate maker. I'm not a professional chocolatier. I have the privilege of being able to work with the products that I do and in the way that I do. But my team are much more qualified at what they do than I am. And for us, it's about bringing those skills and the landscape together to make sure that we can share those skills and experience and perspective with each other. And hopefully that those skills won't get lost because it's really important in our food craftsmanship full stop and not just chocolate. We have a wonderful opportunity here with chocolate, but to the appreciation of food full stop. We have to do more to, to combat that. Within your own professional career, where do you pull your sense of creativity and drive? Maybe even, you know, if you had to define what your role is, because it has evolved since you've now started multiple businesses on your own, but how do you see yourself as leading this team? A lot of what we've been developing as a business, and, and I chop and change between kind of what's in my head and the things that we try and communicate with the business. The business is very much kind of my own living and breathing, I guess, soul in that context. The aspiration is about seeing how do we deliver what we want to deliver 
through collaboration and through communities and and chocolate is just the perfect epitome of that really I'd spent a lot of time looking at um, economies, looking at politics, looking at our communities, um, working with people, whether it was through hospitality or retail or education and community development. And for any of those business contexts to work, we have to connect as a community for it to be most impactful. I'd studied a lot about businesses and when I'd looked at any of the historic chocolate companies or companies full stop, you can almost pinpoint the point where they start losing who they are is when the accountants get in charge. So those founding families and the values of companies that were led by the the Quakers are just something that's really inspiring model to follow. And I kind of look at companies in Germany where they have like the Mittelstand, which is like the family owned businesses. And we kind of look at that narrative of where the Quakers were doing a lot in their local communities. And we sort of see kind of, well, is it just that you have to be a successful business person to be able to make this meaningful contribution? How can we make meaningful contributions in our own lives? And when I started to really delve into that in the world of chocolate, I, I kind of found how complicated and convoluted and kind of what was on the surface doesn't necessarily exist underneath the surface. And so there's so many questions. And so I guess my role is a connector and a problem solver. It's about looking at the macro and being able to maybe consider some of the micro solutions for it. And as we've been doing that, I've been picking up a lot of knowledge of chocolate on the way. And you've done an outstanding job. Speaking of finances and capital, one of the reasons that I wanted to bring you on the show today was because I was so impressed with the crowdfunding campaign that you accomplished alongside investors. I would love to hear about how that came to be and the choice to align with Crowdcube, which was a platform that you used, because it, it seems to have been more focused on reaching certain investors that would come to support your company at a larger level. Now, correct me if I'm wrong in any of those statements, but what was the choice behind that? And and also what sort of preparations did you need to have in place so that you could have it become a reality and a success? It's difficult for me to explain where we're at in terms of our journey without explaining kind of where we've come from in this part. When I first started the business, the Coco House, I started it at a point where I was relatively well. I'd been quite unwell throughout my teenage years and my 20s, and it had meant that I'd made certain life choices about being in York, about the sort of jobs that I could take on based on my physical health and my capabilities. And when I started to hit 30, I was like, right, do you know what? I'm going to try and kind of remove some of these restrictions from my life and see how it goes. So when I started the Coco House, I grabbed every opportunity imaginable because I didn't know how long it was going to last at the time. Um, I didn't know how well I would be. And so when kind of people asked to do things, I was like, well, I'm well enough, so I'm going to go for it. Then in 2012, it was a case of like, right, we, I think we want to bring chocolate making back to York. It's a great thing. We've got lots of response from everybody. It's an amazing opportunity. Let's go for it. Kind of pretty much came close to burning myself out on that journey. 
Um, however, I then got the all clear from my doctor. She wrote me a letter that said, well, you should continue to seize the day. You should be used to getting around being here for a long time yet. And that really kind of made me stop and think. And it really made me take stock of what we'd done, what we'd achieved. And also the fact that we could look to achieve anything we'd set our mind to as long as we thought about it and we put the right things in place. So in 2013 was a really, really pivotal moment. A lot of things happened that year. We kind of very much a, a very sobering position to kind of dig deep and kind of consider what do we need to put the right things in place. And in that, I entered a little competition that said, if you've got any ideas to help your business grow, you should submit it to the Press Association and we'll see what we can do. So I'd submit this idea. I said, I want to bring chocolate making back to York celebrate this chocolate heritage and it was it was a, a conceptual idea it wasn't kind of like I don't know how to do it at that point and a lot of people responded to it strategically here in the city and they kind of helped me to kind of build the the right sort of construction of what we might need to put that in place a lot of people really kind of loved the idea of what we were aiming to do we won the competition locally and then we won the competition regionally and I was like okay that's interesting. And then we ended up going to the national final and we won the competition across the UK, which lent to a massive, for us, it was quite a big cash prize. And it also gave us a lot of press coverage and a lot of connections to work with organisations that were there to help take businesses to the next level. And I also won a year of working with Deborah Maiden, who is in the UK. She's quite a well-known TV business celebrity. It was great. It was great to work with somebody who was a woman in business, who had really grasped what we were trying to do, really grasped potential. And it went into the public domain, what we were doing. And that was then really scary because then everybody would keep asking us what's happening. Um, a lot to take stock of or you're still kind of running a business leading things forward making the most of Christmas we had a big summer season in the city we'd organized a chocolate festival at Easter there were just lots of moments a lot of things to kind of keep up with and make the most of so it kind of it would jump backwards and forwards between can we do this can't we do this and at the end we kind of took a sobering point it's like right you know what the feedback for this has been really amazing we've just got to get on and do it then started getting a lot of interest from some big businesses, a lot of interest from some big investors, a lot of interest from general people in the city that said, yeah, I want to be part of this. So I realized that we had to really put together quite a complex picture of allowing people to be part of this journey, because I really believe that if we can structure the industry in the right way, it needs to have wider stakeholder engagement it needs to have wider shareholder engagement and it needs to not just be about one person's mission. We need to be trying to put in the right foundation for things moving forward. We want to make sure that when it comes to sourcing decisions and when it comes to community-based decisions, it's not just the accountants that are making those decisions, which is what we'd seen with the downfall of those other companies that have basically just picked up their resources out of York and moved it elsewhere. So what we're trying to do is really to put the right foundations in place to create sustainable businesses for the future. That then meant that we wanted to work with local government organisations. We wanted to work with education institutions, as well as kind of some of the bigger businesses, but also the communities that really become an intrinsic part of what we do. None of that could happen if we didn't have a building. 
we couldn't get taken seriously on a building if we didn't have money. Uh, we couldn't get the money unless we had a plan and we couldn't have the plan unless we knew what the building was going to cost. So it was very much kind of a lot of very reiterative chicken and egg sort of situations. And in the end, thankfully to some very, very generous business people in York, they helped support kind of a front loaded project that didn't have necessarily all the finance behind it at each stage, but kind of they really helped get us in a position where we could articulate what we were doing with the level of precision, the level of detail needed. Like we wanted to open a factory in a city centre, like we needed to make sure that we weren't going to disturb the neighbours through noise, through chocolate odour. So we needed to have really detailed plans to demonstrate we knew what we were doing and knew what it was going to cost. So it's been an interesting journey. We'd worked with Crowdcube nearly a year before we actually launched, and they really kind of held our hand throughout that process. They allowed us to create the right structure to do something that allowed everybody to have an equal entry point from at least £10 through to those people that had the mechanism to really support the project further in the future. Ah, okay. So in that sense, it did have some homegrown roots in the average person being able to assist in that what we may know as Kickstarter or Indiegogo, where many people are using those platforms for their personal network, whether that be friends and families. But Crowdcube had this additional piece of their platform that was larger investors. Yeah, exactly. And that gave us the opportunity to connect with different investors from different landscapes that were looking for serious viable business propositions so for us it was a case of um we have the concept of the cic the community interest company was it the right thing for us to do to look at kind of just it being a community-led initiative and it was always yo-yoing backwards and forwards between look i believe that there's serious business proposition in this it's not just about doing the nice thing But we ended up with a lot of critique on uh, Crowdcube as a platform. People kind of saying, we think, nice idea, but get someone else to pay for your ideals. Uh, Nice idea, but you're pushing water uphill. And then kind of more stories started coming out about kind of the success of other companies, especially in the chocolate sphere that started really kind of showing similar models behind what they were doing. And we got some some investors that really, really grasped it. And they've been really quite influential and supportive along this journey in the last year. Maybe the people that didn't get it are those that find the smell of chocolate offensive. <laughs> there are occasions we meet people that are allergic to chocolate. The, the interesting thing, and I do a lot of work with small businesses and people starting their own projects now, because the amount that people have invested in helping us get to where we've got to has been immense it has been a journey and it's been a professional journey as much as anything else about kind of working with grant providers working with government institutions being able to kind of really maximize kind of what that landscape is and make sure we're we're a business that can contribute to the future of the community as much as anything else it's really integral to what a business's role is in a community in my mind anyway it's given us a really interesting insight in terms of the challenges. What happened 10 years ago with the financial shocks has created this world that is kind of splitting in two. And we, we kind of, whether we polarise it between left and right, or we polarise it between those people that are results driven and those people that are much more community and feeling driven, we all end up having mixed values that sit in all of those camps, I think. So for us, it's, it's very much 
I know how when we convey something that makes somebody have a very deep emotional connection with something, I know that is good business. But it's very difficult to make a financial model of that intangibility. And that's something that I've always kind of rallied against throughout my career. I know what good hospitality does for a business that conveys service really well. I know that because I've I've been always at the forefront of delivering that. But if an accountant looks at it and say, well, actually, no, you've got to put that price up there. You've got to cut staffing here. It then starts eroding the core concept of what the values of that community or organization or entity are. And that for me is kind of is always been the crux of whether I've been studying it, philosophy, politics, looking at these theoreticals is how do we get people to value those things that don't have the financial drivers really behind it. You definitely see those people that only value organisations or opportunity based on a balance sheet or a P&L. And that's just so short term. We need to find ways of creating a, a more mixed scenario that values the things that we contribute in the world. So when you're discussing with your team what those long term goals might be or even you know the day to day values that you insist upon and integrate within your business, A, what are some of those? But additionally, do you feel that with what you're saying, you know, this concept of there being polarity in the world, is it possible to win everyone over when you're a business owner and provide a service or provide a product such as you do? No, um, it's, it's not possible. Um, although we aspire to and it's what we aim to do. We aim to deliver. There becomes a point where you have to accept we can't be the sort of structure that you're you're wanting in this. And um, I remember with like a particular a friend of mine that kind of came to some of our tastings and um, when we first started doing them and she rated chocolates that we'd made she'd rated them really low because they were handmade and she'd rated something that was mass produced really high just because it looked really, really precise. And she needed something that looked really precise. That was where her values and everything was, was kind of driven. It was like, it was, it was about how it looked. And I was like, but you're not taking into account what's gone into it, who's made it or kind of what the quality of it is inside. And she was like, no, I expect it to look like that. We're not that sort of people and we're a place where we try and we share and we we encourage people to try and it doesn't matter if we fail in what we do and we at least have tried. And that, I guess, is very much the things that we value and we want to portray in what we do. It's about giving people an opportunity to make something, to give something a go. It's, I'm not, as I say, I'm not a seasoned chocolate professional. I came into this industry wanting to give it a go. And so we want to kind of uphold those things that everybody is welcome, no matter what their values and principles, everybody is always welcome. But whether we are always the right person and we can be the right people for, for everybody is something different. And the last few months, we've been very much very open about saying, hey, well, look, we're going on this journey. Um, I could either burrow away in our chocolate factory and only come out when we've got the perfect chocolate. Or you can come on this journey with us. And you can learn it and you can see what we're doing and you can taste the experimentation. And, and we get some mixed results and mixed feedback from it. Some people get that it's a work in progress. Some people expect that it's going to be perfect straight away. 
And we've kind of become a lot more relaxed and just saying, eh, this is where we're at. But when somebody comes in, like the first day we open the factory, it's like, well, yeah, we just started making chocolate yesterday. But hey, come in anyway. And it's kind of, I think it's really important that we remain like that because that gives people the opportunity to contribute to it, to have ideas, to come and see progress of recipes or share their opinion or kind of like say, yeah, I see what you've done there. Oh, that's really interesting. Oh, that milk balance is better than that milk balance. And But we need we need consumers to feel part of this industry if we want consumers and people to take an active role in its future. Um, and that, I guess, is kind of what we do. It's kind of everybody gets asked what they think, and it's been very much a team effort in, in getting to this point now. Yeah, it's a very interesting way of going about business because it also allows then, as you were saying, with that piece of the consumer or the customer who comes in to also progress with you to have return trips and recognize that, ah, oh, this time I noticed this and on this visit I recognize this and there is empowerment in that. Absolutely. And we've done a lot of work with school groups and things like that. So we had a child come in who had been at one of our school events that we'd done and he brought his family in and he was telling them everything he'd learned in the class. What was wonderful is the fact that he was being empowered to be the teacher in that context and he was saying look taste this or taste this and it was great because he was giving his, his father I think the cocoa beans the raw cocoa beans to try so he knew exactly what face his father was going to pull but it was just lovely to see actually they couldn't tell him that they knew better because they didn't know anything better and that I think is what is really important is kind of like I can't tell somebody what their preferences are. I am here to make something to suit them. So we all have an opportunity to have empowerment in our own choice of consumption, the things that we make. Um, so we have to engage our consumers uh, within that because if I'm not making something for our consumers, then they're not going to come by from us. Absolutely. And that was what I was going to touch on next. Given the historical context of York, what is the perception of many people that are entering York Cocoa Works? What do they know about chocolate? What is their reference point? And do they have family or relatives that are or were a part of some of the old factories that were in existence at one point? The Cocoa Works has been open six months today. So it's kind of quite a surreal kind of moment for us because I can't believe to some extent it's been six months. It's gone so quickly. We have a lot of people that have worked in the industry and when we had machines coming in, we were kind of, people kept coming in anyway, even though they could see it was still pretty much a building site. Um, we had people coming in that have been working in um, cocoa and moving cocoa sacks and a lot of a lot of the, the older men from the industry would come in and just share their own experiences and they'd see the refiner and it's like, oh, that's such a baby in comparison to the big one up at the other big factory. So we kind of very much actively invited people to come in and share their experiences. And I have to say it's been most helpful for us to, to understand a bit around the, some of the engineering challenges um, a bit better. And they're always so warm and so kind in sharing their, their own experiences and, and knowledge, which has been just, just invaluable. How about educating the consumer base on bean to bar? Is that then not necessary or you have to put in more effort because you have to change the concept of what it is you do on an artisan level versus maybe what is considered industrial? On the actual chocolate making narrative itself, 
we have, I guess, two different types of consumers, those that are in the city and from the city and those people that are visitors to the city, people that are coming to look for us because they've heard what we're doing and those people that kind of just stumble past and come in and because we've not fully established our presence here yet in the, the city kind of narrative. There's a lot around kind of being able to convey to people that we are making chocolate and exactly how chocolate is made. And in the most part, we tend to be working from scratch with people. They think of chocolatiers. Everybody kind of knows the concept of a chocolatier, but actually conveying that we're going all those stages back. We're going from the beans. Um, it's either hitting somebody who just kind of gets that and takes that for granted that that's what we're doing. Or people that are like, wow, like you mean that this comes from this? We designed the space so that it could be fully observed. And I guess the key mantra that, that, that we worked on with the architects and the designers is I wanted them to be able to, a consumer to be able to physically, visually see the beans from the beginning to the end process if they really wanted to. If they could stare at that cocoa long enough, they could see it fully transformed into a chocolate product. And people do. People can see the whole process. Everything is very open and exposed. So we've tried to kind of dot it in with kind of explaining what's happening in the process so that it is very immediately visually engageable and understandable. As soon as we do take the time to explain to each customer, then they get it. They completely get it that maybe they should aspire to know how chocolate is made um, or kind of aspire to make purchases from companies that, that share with them and are prepared to share with them how, how their chocolate is made. And we have a number of other chocolate makers products that we sell from across the UK and across Europe whose products we really believe in as well kind of uphold those values. And they are all kind of bean to bar chocolate makers. But we tend not to kind of position ourselves as being about being bean to bar or craft chocolate makers. We want to kind of really just assert that we should all know kind of what goes into our products that we consume. And, and this is how we're making our chocolate. That's great. Could you divulge a little bit on what some of the favorites are, whether that is within the cafe space or from the retail portion? What are people falling in love with? The Cocoa House is where our chocolatiers are. So this is very much the narrative and the business plan that we've been delivering. So that the Cocoa House is where the chocolatiers live and they work there. And the Cocoa Works is where our chocolate makers create the chocolate product from the beans. So we make blocks and bars of chocolates. We make hot chocolate here. We don't make flavoured chocolate. We don't make chocolate truffles. That's what our chocolatiers do. And that's the role of the chocolatiers there in that context. The key things that have been very successful have been our chocolate orange range, obviously, because of York and the very famous product from the city. So that's always been a success. And then we've kind of got some of our unusual flavours of truffles. What we do here at the works now is we make what we call our core couverture range or our core chocolate range, which is our milk and dark chocolate collections, all to varying percentages made with the same cocoa. So that's kind of our core cocoa that's coming from our farmers in Colombia. And then I guess what's been really, really interesting is seeing how much people are prepared to explore different flavours. When we started out about a year and a half ago, we started making chocolate 
and trialing it and sharing it with people and asking for feedback. And we tend to make with a core recipe. So we have a core recipe. We make everything is done to that recipe. The only difference is where the cocoa comes from, giving us an opportunity to allow the cocoa to really come through and shine in that recipe. And so we've been working with a range of different cocos to be able to explore kind of those flavors and also to kind of identify which of the cocoa we want to work with more and what sort of demand is coming from different consumers and the really really kind of I guess upsetting thing for me is that there's no consensus because it doesn't make planning a business that easy when kind of there's not a great deal of a consensus um, between people's preferences for flavors but everybody is different and that's really really offering a lot of beautiful and exciting opportunities at the moment is that all of those flavor profiles people are really finding their kind of their own niche and they're not afraid to explore and express it so i think that's really exciting but it does mean that we don't have one clear far on ahead winner and things people are kind of looking for new opportunities to taste different things and what are those countries that you're partnering with we're doing a lot of work in colombia at the moment we have been for the last eight years really we're just waiting for some new origins from Colombia to arrive. And I'm really excited about us being able to explore just this narrative that when people talk about single origin, kind of in the mainstream consumer perception, they think they're talking about one country. And it's just like really to kind of start breaking down some of these preconceptions that single origin really is a historic term. It doesn't really mean anything constructive anymore when we've got different farms different regions different areas within farms that are all conveying different flavor profiles and that for us is is a really amazing tool for us to share and encourage consumers to really see that there's so much more than just kind of perceiving cocoa from one country is going to be all like this or cocoa from this region is going to be all like this and I think that's really important for us to kind of reconnect with the seasonality of, of nature and, and kind of bring cocoa into that conversation. Indeed, especially when so many are starting from a place of, is there more than one taste of chocolate? So, so many layers to walk through there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you talk about hot chocolate or drinking chocolates? I'm not sure the proper term within your region, but I know that's an important piece on your menu. And of course, we have to give reference to the chocolate houses of Georgia and New York. The involvement of, again, with this community-based impact on almost pub culture, but where chocolate was partaken. I came across this wonderful document. I love reading the, I guess, the footnotes and the bibliographies of some of these old reference material, and then we'll kind of go delving into other old reference material. And I came across this wonderful document that was called Coffee Palaces and Cocoa Houses or something like that. And it talked about the chocolate houses and the history of chocolate houses and how to create an effective cocoa house for the day's consumer. So this was like written in 1892, I think it was. And it talked about the whole narrative of what a cocoa house was. Now, I have to admit, it it made me sound really, really intelligent, but I had no idea of this book when we opened the cocoa house. I had no idea of what we'd created had already been gone before. What I was creating was a, a chocolate cafe, which was a hark back to the chocolate houses of Georgian England. And the chocolate houses where, as opposed to the coffee houses that were the penny universities, 
or as they were considered um, in London, that the chocolate houses were places that were much more kind of luxurious and indulgent. So I wanted to take a chocolate house of Georgian, England, and mix it with a coffee shop that I wanted to be a bit more comfortable. That was kind of the vision. And then I came across this document that was written, as I said, in the 1800s, talking about cocoa houses. And I was like, okay, but I had no idea that this whole narrative had existed there. And this whole narrative was talking about places where people could read, places where people always felt welcome. And without any specific design, we had crafted our own version that had a very strong resemblance to these consumer values that the Quakers were very much kind of pushing at the forefront of the temperance movement in the 1800s. Um, And so we end up with the evolution of chocolate. So the original drinking chocolate recipe, so again, kind of looking back at that food history, was looking at particular the treatise of an Indian drink. So the true nature of chocolate, which was by Antonio de Decima, if anyone's come across it. And it's um, a wonderful kind of English translation of this text that talks about these different ways of drinking chocolate. And they're trying to analyse the true nature of the cocoa bean and understand whether it was good for you or bad for you. So they were trying to use a logical philosophical reason to apply this code to evaluate if chocolate was good or bad because otherwise it came under great suspicion. And it was that recipe that actually stayed in place for a good few hundred years in the chocolate houses of England when it was eventually consumed over here. So that was kind of the recipe we wanted to hark back to. I wanted to do a lot of drawing from the historical resonance because um, there are wonderful recipes like William Salmon's recipe for chocolate wine, lots of really, really beautiful decadent recipes where chocolate had been indulged in at its best, in my mind, whenever I've tried these recipes. Chocolate for us, I wanted it to kind of really stand out and have a special space. We wanted the Cocoa House to be a place that was always going to be synonymous with a vast array of drinking chocolates. And that's one of the market areas that we're wanting to explore further in the future. So in York, we have a very, very famous institution, Betty's um, of York. They have another company that creates Yorkshire tea. And that's a product which is now quite world famous. And for us, we wanted to create this relationship with the identity and space of York, York and its drinking chocolate, its drinking chocolate culture, and be able to provide the opportunity for people to come and discover and explore and have their own chocolate that they could connect to when they really needed it. I know that we were on that back and forth Twitter conversation between your PhD and chocolate history, but I already feel like you have it. I've come across two documents, really. One document talked about, it was a report that talked about you could understand the value of a community based on the number of its independent chocolate shops. So it was a real estate report looking at the real house prices in a community and where you really wanted to identify the best places to live were the places that had the highest number of independent chocolate shops. So it was whether there was a push or a pull effect on the chocolate shops and the house prices. Is it gentrification or is it a symbol of gentrification or is it something that drives gentrification in that context? So that was kind of a very much modern day report. And then the other one was around the consumption of sugar and the correlation between the consumption of sugar and GDP of a nation. 
And that's something that kind of really, it's a really strong resonating statistic or kind of trend to monitor that really kind of holds true today. So I'm really interested to see if we can take something from both of those studies and combine it with the economic model for Big Mac. I don't know if you've ever come across it, but there's a concept which is called the Big Mac Index in economics. And it understands the different values of a economy based on the relative price of a Big Mac in each of those economies. So it gives us a marker to be able to understand the real price and real value and real wages of things in that economy based on a Big Mac. So I'm kind of like, I've been obsessed with the fact that maybe there's something we can do to correlate and study that in relation to chocolate. I.e., so if you got to a place where you had the price of a chocolate bar and it aligned with, let's say, the GDP and also the value of the real estate market, you would know more or less the future of a city? Yeah, well, it's really kind of to bring some of the more social dynamics into the conversation. So... The correlation with GDP and sugar consumption in this country kind of started levelling out and plateauing from the 1980s when we ended up hitting the last, that kind of last really big recession in that way. And when everybody got to a stage where they could afford as much sugar as they had. So it no longer became a marker of GDP, whereas in other nations, it still is a marker in relationship with GDP. But we know that GDP does not tell us anything about the actual prosperity of a nation. And so if we look to kind of how our consumer habits are expressing themselves, we can start to understand much more about the more social dynamics that are a little bit more difficult for us to measure than just in terms of measuring a country on its success based on its GDP. So like when we look at kind of the ethical impact in purchasing, we look at the the health concerns and impact in purchasing, we start kind of the the Big Mac index is no longer sufficiently fit for purpose for all these other dynamics that are going on in the world. So kind of maybe different models of looking and observing what's happening in those other consumer marker industries. And chocolate is, is that one in my mind. Wow. So when you're not making chocolate or running a business or hiring new employees, you are obviously reading and studying and putting every moment of free time into becoming a better human. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess um, I have a long way to go to becoming the sort of human I'd want to be. So uh, I guess that's always going to be part of the task ahead. It's something to look forward to and very admirable at that. I've just been tickled to have you today. So thank you again for divulging on all this information and sharing your passion with us. One thing that I'd like to discuss that's a little taboo and not so much in today's day and age, I feel that it kind of on the, the up and up, but there was a time in history when modern history more so that, that English food got a bad rap. I've always thought that that was not something to believe. You know, if you just look at clotted cream, how could you think otherwise? But you put an emphasis in the cafe menu and also just in what you're creating within your skills as a chocolatier from years ago into using very local ingredients and sourcing extremely high caliber, but also with just a lot of thought to craftsmanship. And I would like to hear from your perspective and point of view as a, I think you're born and raised in New York, yes? I'm not, oh, I'm afraid. Okay. Well, that doesn't matter. <laughs> Someone who spent <laughs> a lot of time in New York and spent a lot of time studying food history in the region, how to incorporate, but also that creates innovation in food of the region within your menu items. 
York, whether we look at it through its history, it had all these amazing things going on around it. But I guess 20 years ago, we were less inclined to want to celebrate the local regions and more inclined for kind of like cheap food, fast food, quick food, uh, in terms of like things like microwave meals. And I guess that's the bit I remember from the 1980s, like the microwave coming in and making everything much more convenient. I've always grown up in a family that has always been about food. My elder brother is a chef, and so I grew up kind of learning bits and pieces from him, what he was doing. So our celebrations have always been around food and the food that I remember of my childhood um, and cooking as a family and eating as a family. In the 80s and 90s, a lot of that started to get lost in a way that the care and understanding of food wasn't getting passed on to different generations. And I think the UK, when we talk about it, and certainly when we talk about it in terms of chocolates, when I first kept saying, oh, we want to do this about chocolate in York, the responses I would get from others in the industry, well, what's York got to do with good chocolates? Or what's what good chocolate relationship is there with York? It's just these candy confectionery products. If we turn that on its head and we look at it from a different direction, is the Industrial Revolution created ways of taking great products, great producers, and industrialising it in ways that can make those products affordable to the nation. So um, we might have lost our areas of excellence in terms of the country. And that was really what I was always looking to France to see, that they really celebrated their areas of excellence. But what we did was we made those products affordable and accessible. And that's something that the Quakers were very much kind of uh, at the heart of what they did. We still have these amazing food producers. And through my work with local food, through the slow food movement um, and other organizations, was coming in contact with all of these amazing food producers. So my lesson, first of all, when it came to looking at how to cook was, well, if you start off with amazing ingredients, then you've not got that much of a job to do to make something that will taste sufficiently amazing um, and working within regional food I started seeing just how amazing some of these food producers were they were creating things that just had so much character and flavor in it so therefore if I wanted to create a chocolate product the best thing for me to do was to create it using the ingredients from our local environment but I think it really goes back to what I was seeing in the economy kind of like 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when we were reinventing so many things, the crash had happened and all this other stuff was going on. And it's really kind of a really simple kind of message at the core of it. If we've got money to spend, spend it with people, you know, and therefore it then makes a bigger impact because they then spend it with people they know and they spend it in that local economy and that local community and the community gets stronger. So that's really kind of just at the heart of it. We can have a much bigger impact by spending and redistributing the money that comes through our door with people that we know that are doing great stuff. And that makes it much easier for us to make great stuff. Great. Do you want to mention any of your favorite combinations for someone who's maybe not familiar with the cuisine of the area? So one of the chocolates that we make is a Yorkshire blue cheese chocolate. So it's Yorkshire blue cheese and biscuits. I think that's one, probably one of my favourite combinations. It's making Yorkshire Blue is from a company called Shepherd's Purse, and um, Judy Bell there has been a, an amazing role model. And seeing her cheeses kind of go from small scale domestic product to now kind of big mainstream export supermarket style, it's still amazingly great cheese, and it's um, it's great that the rest of the country gets to share in that product now. Um, so I always love that one because it's always one that kind of 
always stuns people and they don't like the idea of it and then they kind of take it and taste it and then like they come back to me so their mind has been blown in that context what I'm loving at the moment though that the team are making it was um dark chocolate with white chocolate goat's cheese cream and sun-dried tomatoes so that was um, a local goat's cheese and cream kind of making in that one and we're just so lucky to have great farmers and great producers here on our doorstep. Absolutely. We're about to enter the lightning round, but I just have one final question and it is more on the personal end, but you had mentioned that you had dealt with some health problems earlier on. For those that might be listening that are either dealing with something of that in their own life right now, or maybe, you know, will come across it as so many of us do in our lifetime. What advice do you have for them? how you seized the day or, you know, maybe what attitude you kept, something that that allowed you to continue to feel passion every day, knowing that maybe even inside you weren't doing so well? Um, To be honest, I've no idea if I can offer any constructive um, advice in that regard, because I don't feel passion every day. Um, I don't have get up and go every day, but I have tried to structure things to at least keep going on the days when I can't. And I think that's really, it's about balance. I think that's the the one thing that that cocoa and chocolate, um, whether it's in roasting beans or making chocolate or tempering it, it really, it grounds me in so many ways because it is about balance. It is about um, investing in all of the things that are so important to you rather than just allowing one thing to excel and it, that's kind of, I guess, the philosophy that we've applied to the whole business, really. It's about making sure that that everything can keep improving collectively rather than allowing one thing to excel at any one time. And I think that's key to allowing a business to continue to succeed. Um, and also for our own sort of mental health and physical health. For me, my illness, my condition, I have a condition called Crohn's disease, which meant that for a large period of my 20s, I wasn't able to eat food. And so food has very many different meanings to me. But kind of realizing that actually, when I started investing in my my own physical health and mental health and my own creativity and my own ambition, actually, I created an environment that could allow me to really prosper and feel fulfilled. So I think balance is probably the most important thing. I appreciate you sharing that. For me, you know, I always get a spoonful of humility through chocolate. And I feel like that is much the same way with life as well. Every day I'm absolutely taking a spoonful of humility in what I learned from others and what I experience in my daily interactions. And just, again, I'm just thrilled to be speaking with you because I'm now more challenged to go out and, and learn more and, you know, understand that in the years ahead of chocolate, there's still such a world that awaits me. And that's just so exciting. Isn't it? Isn't it? There's just like never ending, like rabbit warren of things to explore and discover. And I'm reconciled that the fact of this is this is where life is. And it but it's kind of it could go off in so many different directions. And it's, it's made me meet so many amazing people. I'm just so thankful to it. It sure is. Well, let's see if we get through these questions or not. And I know that you had mentioned earlier on that they were quite difficult for you because you didn't necessarily want to be on one side or another. So we'll, we'll give it a go. <laughs> okay. We'll see how All we'll right. see how it is. So with the lightning round, we have just ten rapid fire questions. And okay. that is number one. Craft, fine or specialty chocolate? 
Oh, no, I'm going to just say all of them. Okay. Fair enough. To each their own, you know, there's there's no judging here. It's... It, it depends what time. Do you know what? And sometimes I like a Mars bar. I know that's, that makes me quite feel ashamed, shouldn't I? But, yeah. You can say whatever you feel. Bars, bonbons, or drinking chocolate? I'm going to say bonbons. Best hours for productivity for you? Either 10 p.m. or 7 a.m. I'm either raring to go in the morning or I've kind of find my pace in the evening. So when you wake up, is it morning coffee or tea? Tea. I can answer that one categorically. Handmade or handcrafted? As a term. It was handmade. I now use handcrafted, but I think I sometimes sound pretentious. One word about being an entrepreneur. Challenging. And fun. Fun. Maybe fun should be the first one. All right. We'll take fun. Would you rather be on stage presenting or backstage supporting? Both. We'll take it. Yeah, both. On stage, unless I've not got someone good backstage, and then it's backstage. Chocolate cake or chocolate biscuits? Chocolate cake. A thousand new customers or ten loyal? Um, ten loyal. An old favorite or trying a new recipe? Uh, Both have their time and excitement and pleasure. There you go. All right, you made it through. Okay. (laughs) Are there any final thoughts that you'd like to add or something you'd like to share with the community as far as how to come visit you, when to do that, some big upcoming projects? Well, we're open absolutely every day, except for Christmas Day and Boxing Day. But um, yeah, we've got the Coco House and the Coco Works. And it's really, really special when people come to visit. But do, do let me know on social media if you're coming beforehand and I'll see if I can make sure I can make myself available. It's just been such a privilege. I've shared our journey kind of on the Well-Tempered Forum and just seeing that we're not alone on this journey has just been phenomenal. It's really, really inspired. So thank you for all the work you do, Lauren. It's, it's really fabulous and it, it does so much. Well, thank you for saying that. I'm just super tickled that we have a place to connect with one another and celebrate those moments because, as you were saying, it is incredibly challenging to be on this journey from whatever angle you come in at or you know whatever path you're on right now. And to know that there's someone by your side just with a little pat on the back is often, at least for me, sometimes what I need to get through the day. <laughs> absolutely yeah absolutely well thank you so much sophie for sharing everything that you know and everything that you're looking forward to we're certainly behind you thank you so much thank you sophie for being well-tempered and another thank you for listening in september well-tempered turned two years old it's been an absolute joy to share the stories of women in chocolate A special thank you to Nick and Marta of One One Cacao in Kingston, Jamaica, who visited Barcelona a few weeks ago, and we had a grand time chatting about the startup life. I also owe an enormous thank you to Lilla Toth Tatai of Little Beetle Chocolates. She put her faith in Weekend and 23 other craft brands for the creation of the first craft chocolate advent calendar with multiple makers. I was honored by the opportunity to share the first batch made here in Barcelona and a limited edition one nonetheless. 
My things still haven't arrived from the shipping container, but that's a story for another day. The opening and closing songs are written and produced by Anna Garcia. If you need to get in touch with me, please do so at Weekend Chocolate on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, stay well-tempered. a child my mommy asked me with a smile what you will be when you get older the only thing I have clear is just to make this place a bit warmer she looked at me and with her voice eyes she answered if you want to make this place a sweeter world